Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I will be joined by staff reporters Jack Harris, Max Madden, Mason Kern, and as always, site publisher Chris Cartman. We're back from our holiday hiatus. Happy to be here. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great, Rob. Thanks for asking. It's good to be back. Yeah, Rob. Nice to have you back. We had to like do a rotating rotation of hosts. That was a bad sentence, but... Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty happy to be here. I'm pretty happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to be back, Rob. Really excited to get this going again for this semester. My eyes are rotating around the room, and I'm so excited to see all you guys. Uh, boss man's got all his interns around. Okay, well, we got a lot to unpack on this episode. On this episode, we'll be talking about ASU men's basketball. They completed a 14-point comeback against the California Golden Bears last night, winning 80-66. to They're in the Bay Area, and they're about to travel to Palo Alto down south. And they'll play Stanford on Saturday evening at about 4 p.m. On that, we'll have more about ASU men's basketball, how they're doing, the performance of Jaden Daniels and Joey Yellen in the Under Armour All-America game. We're going to set the stage for early spring practices, spring ball for football, explain the reasons why ASU is doing it. We'll have a little bit on ASU baseball, what we unpacked from the media session on Monday. But first, we're going to start with what Chris wrote, the story on the hiring on Wednesday morning that former Chandler High School football coach Sean Aguana will be ASU's next running back coach. ASU had the vacancy after John Simon accepted a job at Memphis as wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator. Chris, what can you tell us further than what's been reported so far? Well, Sean Aguana is definitely one of the best high school coaches of all time in the state of Arizona. Uh, About three years ago, there was a possibility of Aguano joining ASU staff after a number of departures uh, under Todd Graham, that's when Mike Norvell, Chip Long, Chris Ball, and other coaches left. Um, Bo Graham had earlier in the year, and there were some informal conversations, but it never materialized. Uh, subsequent to that, Aguano won a couple more state championships. He, I think he had just uh, had won one at that point in time. Now he's won uh, three of the last four. Um, and 63-8 uh, and eight record just over the last five seasons. So that's that's quite an accomplishment. I remember many years ago when Jim Ewan was the head coach at Chandler and the team had a really hard time getting over the hump uh, just in its own area. It struggled to beat Hamilton High School, which was the dominant force at that point in time. And Iguana was able to take the team uh, over the hump, and they've, they've been the best program Uh, at the highest uh, classification level in the state. Uh, He played running back uh, at an NAIA school in in, uh, Oregon uh, three decades ago. He's from Hawaii, went back to Hawaii to coach for uh, several years. Then he became an assistant coach at Chandler about 20 years ago, head coach eight years ago. Uh, He is an extremely kind, genuine, sincere coach who does things the right way uh i I, one of the things i said on twitter is that a lot of coaches can rule by an iron fist and get compliance and and guys buying in but it's it's harder to sustain that guano did it uh the the other way he did it by uh appealing to players best instincts and just trying to get them to buy in and want to compete for him uh, and he's obviously stepping into a great situation at ASU because right. Eno Benjamin is uh, set an all-time record uh, last season uh, for rushing yards in school history and will be a junior this season. There's five offensive line starters coming back. 
and uh, we can get into the value of a guano from a recruiting standpoint and all these other sort of factors. But if you guys want to weigh in it a little bit as well. Yeah, building off the, the his coaching style and then doing it the right way and the, and the kindness part Chris was talking about, um, Nikhil Harry is a really good example of that. Um, when Harry went to Chandler at the beginning of his junior year, um, we wrote about this a little bit at the beginning of the season, he – you know, he needed some guidance and, uh, Iguano was one of the first guys who really kind of gave that to him as a really, you know, talented, obviously big time recruit, but also somebody who was able to kind of narrow his focus both on the football field and, and some of the stuff they did away from the classroom. Um, you know, anytime, uh, the few times I've covered Chandler games, he's one of like the best high school coaches to talk to after games in terms of getting quotes and the way that, that he kind of breaks things down. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, as far as hires go, this one's pretty good. It's going to help mm-hmm. with the in-state recruiting, which, you know, the, the coaching staff and Al Luganville talked about uh, on early signing day. So, yeah, all around a, a pretty solid hire. So what ASU's been doing in recent the last, you know, year, even really two years is Donnie Yanis was a holdover from the previous staff. He, he was elevated from uh, being in charge of ASU's on-campus recruiting to being a tight ends coach. But – uh, he's the guy who's the point man on a lot of the in-state recruiting. He goes to all the high schools in the spring. Mm-hmm. He has the initial uh, sort of interaction uh, with recruits, evaluates them, and then they get passed uh, uh, over to position coaches once they've been offered mm-hmm. scholarships by ASU. Um, Aguano gives ASU another person who really has a lot of uh, – um, knowledge base of the community locally relationships with all these other coaches he's extremely well liked uh among his peers in the the high school coaching community and so that's going to immediately have some resonance Uh, i'm i'm quite confident Mm -hmm. um and he also of course knows who the best players are he's been going up against them preparing for them talking about them and so that uh, will help ASU as well. And now, at a minimum, they'll have a couple of guys on their staff who have uh, very deep roots mm-hmm. in the local uh, high school scene. And, 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 of course, ASU's had, everybody knows, a lot of problems recruiting in-state uh, over many years. This has been a, an endemic type of a problem that one person can't fix it. Probably five people can't fix it. It's going to take a full team effort, a lot of time and energy and, and years mm-hmm. uh, to, to make ASU be perceived as a place that recruits should go to locally as opposed to going to a USC or a Texas A&M or right. some of these other high-profile schools nationally. Uh, and, and it's not going to happen overnight. This is something that we're going to have to just kind of evaluate over the next few years. Yeah, and I know something that people are curious about because, uh, you know, you you come into a situation where you have Eno Benjamin who did everything Chris just said. He had a phenomenal year. What do you guys think some of his first steps are going to be in 2019 with a a pretty set running backs group already? Uh, I think the relationship with Benjamin is going to be interesting just because we know how close him and John Simon were. They talked all year about the the, 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 uh, blueprint that they had for his career right. and his development. Um, so filling point. that void and kind of how they connect, I think will be a big deal uh, just because of how close Benjamin and Simon were. But again, I don't think that's going to be like much of an issue, but it is a change for a guy who is going to be the workhorse of ASU's offense in 2019. They, 
are going to want to hit the ground running with recruiting. And um, Bijan Robinson is one of the top running back prospects in the country. He's at South Point Catholic in Tucson. I'm very confident that uh, this period of January allows coaches to go down and at least be seen uh, by some of these guys. And so I, I'm very confident that uh, they'll make sure that Iguano uh, gets down to South Point Catholic and probably right. some of these other local schools, and then and then uh, that they try to to get him as quickly up to speed as possible with some of the running backs that they they're recruiting elsewhere in 2020. Remember ASU, uh, even though he has Eno Benjamin and then AJ Carter was a freshman. Uh, there's you know some other players that left the program, right? Uh, and and they they didn't they haven't they didn't sign a, a 2019 running back Jordan, they have one who's going to be visiting who's committed to USC named Jordan Wilmore um, but um, they're going to need to hit on uh, a big time running back or two in, in 2020 so that's that's a, a big point of emphasis in addition to the local recruiting and so this is some of the just the groundwork so far but we're going to have much more on uh, Guano on premium podcast member podcast to follow. Um, we're going to transition right now, though, to basketball, ASU basketball. Avoids what would have been, I feel like, a disaster in Berkeley, winning 80-66. to 66. Everyone feels like that. Yeah, Cal had a 14-point lead uh, with over six minutes to go, remaining in the first half, just a little bit over that. Um, just simply, why do you guys think the team looked so, I don't know, lost, asleep offensively? It just looked like that was probably one of the worst halves of basketball we've seen out of a Bobby... Hurley, out of a Bobby Hurley coach team since he's been at ASU? Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to last year a little bit when Cal came out in a zone. ASU just, I mean, this team is already probably a worse shooting team than last year's team with Shannon Evans, Trey Holder, Cody Justice. This year's team, yes, they're more athletic. Yes, they're a better rebounding team, but they just aren't as good of a shooting team. And a zone allows you maybe to get more open looks, but if you can't hit them, you're not going to, one, get the momentum, get the confidence to, to score points, but that also translates over to the defensive end when Cal was was hitting a lot of their shots early on. And, I mean, Tayshawn Cherry, Kamani Lawrence also, zero threes the entire game. I think they went uh, 0 for 8 combined from three so that hurts it took Remy Martin to get hot in the second half for ASU to come back in the game and I don't know if that is sustainable over a long period of time looking ahead to Stanford and some of these other conference games especially on the road you can't really rely on that so they're gonna have to figure out how to beat other teams zones because they know that's what other teams are gonna throw at them yeah Rob I think that ASU is just playing pretty soft down low in the post that's what I was talking to Chris about and you know, when Kamani Lawrence and Tayshawn Cherry don't hit threes and they go over eight, that's just not going to help. And with the team that has been so uh, inconsistent on offense, it really does, like Mason said, take a big performance uh, from Remy Martin or, you know, drives to the through the lane from uh, Zalen Cheatham and Lugan Stort. So I think that this ASU uh, team is really still, I mean, there's plenty of talent, obviously, to carry them past teams that are really bad, uh, like Cal, but... I think when it when it gets into those tougher you know non-conference op- or conference opponents, I think even the Stanford game could be pretty interesting. ASU is going to need to yeah. find a more consistent way to score on offense that doesn't just rely on hero ball from a handful of guys. I think these last four games for ASU have been really interesting. Um, the Princeton and Utah games to me were pretty similar. Uh, they struggled to shoot the ball for most parts of the game, with the exception of the first the first you know couple minutes of the Utah game, and then they went cold. Um, and then against Colorado. It was like completely different. They start out with Daquan Lake and Romello White. They played a much more structured type of offense right. where you had two big men on the blocks 
they did a really good job getting the ball inside with Cheatham hooking up with White a couple times and White getting in the middle of that Colorado zone and hitting you know a 15-foot jump shot, wheeling to the hoop, making some passes out of there, and doing a good job scoring around the basket. They didn't have to take a lot of threes against Colorado. Mm-hmm. Then they changed the starting lineup against Cal last night. Um, yeah. You know, you put Lugan Stort back on the floor, and what happens is instead of playing with two guys down low, they only had Romello White inside. They started settling for some open threes, and they weren't hitting them. You know, they attempted 15 three-pointers in the first half out of their 33 shot attempts. Most nights, that's not a good recipe for ASU because while they have guys who, who can make threes in Kamani Lawrence and Rob Edwards and Remy Martin, very rarely are they all doing it on a, cons- on a consistent basis. Right. Um, so, like, to me, the, the, the challenge ASU has is when teams throw zone at you, can you find ways to get inside and score inside? Um, against Colorado, they were able to do that. Now, Colorado doesn't play one of the better zones in the Pac-12, but that was a good model. There was a lot of passing. They found a guy who could be kind of a zone breaker in the middle of the offensive floor, um, and, and it worked. And they, Repeating that's going to be the challenge because it didn't happen at first against Cal. They gave up some early threes to Cal. Um, you know, I think on the defensive side, there's some questions about the on-ball defending and closing down the three-point line. Um, but, yeah, like Max said, if they can't consistently find ways to get into the paint and score and get around the rim and score, it's going to be tough for them to avoid some bad results in the Pac-12. Right, and I'm sure to a lot of ASU fans, this sounds pretty familiar to last year where this is a team that, for whatever reason, just goes cold quite often shooting the ball. But this this isn't a team that needs to shoot the ball super effectively, I think, to be successful, given their athleticism and their ability to dominate in the post. We've seen Romello White really come into his own these last few games mm-hmm. and be one of ASU's most efficient scorers. And I think that, you know, once Hurley and this team can get that moving in the right direction offensively underneath, they won't have to rely on these, you know, uh, these long three-point shots from Remy Martin, though, you know, he shot five of seven against Cal, but he's obviously not going to do that every game. And uh, Lou Dort's shot can be pretty inconsistent uh, from beyond the arc. So once ASU can can work it down underneath and, and find some more space offensively, they won't have to rely on their shooting as much as they did last year. I thought they actually passed up a number of inside shots last night. There was like a bunch of times where they kicked the ball like, out yeah. that they could have taken a, a better shot. Now, ASU's probably the worst adjusted field goal percentage team in the league, definitely one of the worst. Um, the problem with that, though, is that all too often they're comfortable just jacking threes. And... Um, maybe not realizing, hey, this isn't a good shot for us. Now, Zylan Cheatham said after ASU lost to Utah that we're not methodically taking apart opponents on offense. And that's because, in my opinion at least, they've been a very fast and free and loose type of a team under Bobby Hurley. Mm -hmm. But that really isn't necessarily the best way for this team to win basketball games, in my opinion. They need to be extremely intent on getting the ball to where they want it to be on the floor and to pass up what they would probably consider to be open shots for higher percentage shots in and around the basket. And they didn't do that last night. Now, Cal is one of the worst defensive teams in the country among major conference schools, okay, like terrible in the advanced metrics. So uh, White King Jones, Cal's coach, said pretty candidly, uh, we're just going to go zone 
and see if they could shoot it over us. He said that straight up. Just similar to what uh, Tad Boyle said from Colorado after that game, too. And I totally agree with you, Jack, in that uh, Colorado's defense zone is one of the worst in the league. Very average, you know, just a generic garden variety 2-3 zone. Cal's zone was also very garden variety and not particularly impressive. It's not like when you play defensive teams like Oregon or Washington, when they have the ability to a change gears, go into different types of zones. They'll extend you more into a three-quarter court trap in a way that, that uh, makes it problematic for you to get into what you're trying to do offensively. Right. Um, the big picture thing here is ASU probably overall shot around what it's going to be from three. Yeah, Remy Martin shot the ball well. Others shot the ball poorly, uh, as was referenced by Mason and others, uh, with Cherry going 0-5. And Kamani Lawrence, has, you know, he's had a, a, a disappearing streak of late. But overall, it's probably going to be around a 30, 30, low 30s percent type of a team. But they just need to, to be more determined to get great shots and work the ball into the interior against the zone uh, to be able to be more successful. The, uh, otherwise, they're always going to have these these uh, points in game in games where they basically go into a really bad stretch for six, eight, ten plus minutes. And it, okay, you can you can do it against Cal, who by the way also was missing its its best player. Uh huh. But you're not going to be able to do the same thing and be Arizona, right. Oregon, Washington, and then even more talented teams like a UCLA or USC. And what's also different about when you get into Pac-12 plays, like in the non-conference, ASU would miss a lot of shots, but it also got a lot of offensive rebounds and second chance points. It goes away right. when you start playing Pac-12 teams. Even Utah stuck with them in rebounding. Yeah. Cal stuck with them in rebounding. Uh, even Princeton didn't held their own on the glass, you know, in, in that last non-conference game. So that's just like one more advantage where, you know, you wonder why this team can look so good in the non-conference part of the season and then start to struggle against these Pac-12 teams. It's just a lot tougher matchups, a lot longer teams, and a lot of those advantages they had early in the season start to go away. And that's a good point. And just building off of it, the the challenges against the zone are exacerbated when you have longer teams because it's really against these man defenses, ball screens, where you get the ball penetration from the perimeter that forces help defenders over so that when a shot goes up on the rim and misses like Lugens Dort is prone to, you have Romello White or right. whoever else like there to clean that up, cheat them. You have those Against the zone, yeah. it's much harder to have guys – drawing to you as help defenders that lead to somebody right. else being able to clean it up. Now you can have, you know, guys get lost in the zone and then you can get rebounds that way. It mm -hmm. still happens, but it's, it's probably not as reliable. Mm -hmm. And ASU next heads to face Stanford on Saturday at, at 4 PM from Maples Pavilion. Jack wrote a great preview of this Bay Area series and explained that this ASU program hasn't captured a road weekend sweep since 2010 when the league was the Pac-10. Which is just crazy it's like you gotta it's it makes sense why when you're not winning conference road games you're not consistently going to the tournament or getting close to going to the tournament yeah and bobby hurley's team is going up against the stanford team that's really struggled though this season uh there was the, the, the stanford team lost to usf this year or san francisco this year and uh, most recently the cardinal coming off a 75 70 loss to arizona that game was on wednesday night the same night that asu defeated cal this seems to be a pretty great opportunity for ASU, although I do think it's a, a tougher test. 
then this Cal game. Do you guys think ASU can can get this get this game and and end that statistic? Uh, well, I think a lot of it's going to depend on if Zylan Cheatham plays. Uh, Bobby Hurley said earlier this week and after last night's game that it's still up in the air with his availability um, after uh, his brother uh, was killed a couple weeks ago. Uh, the funeral services on Saturday morning back in Phoenix. Um, if he doesn't play, I think Stanford probably wins the game um, because you have, you know, the Cardinal have a guy in Casey Akpala that is just a beast that I know Chris, it's like he's like one of, Chris thinks he's one of the best players in the Pac-12, and he probably is. You also have a guy in Dejon Davis, and I think the problem you might run into is if you're ASU, we've seen good, like, perimeter players, guy, they don't have great man-on-man defense on the outside, and if you lose Island Cheatham, who is your best guy at that, yeah. okay, so what are you going to do? Do you do you trust, you know, Kamani Lawrence or, or somebody to, to try to guard Casey Akpala? No. So you're going to have to probably play a zone, which without Zion Cheatham is a lot harder because you're losing length and athleticism on the floor, um, mm-hmm. and you're also losing a guy who – when things go bad on the offensive end of the floor, can settle it down when, when he goes to that point forward spot. So maybe I, they can win, but I would say if he doesn't play, I, I, I would take Stanford. I think that was great analysis. Anybody else want to weigh in? Well, Chris, you and I were, were in Stanford last year at the game when ASU really struggled shooting the ball. So I, I'm curious to see. I, I went back and, and saw that a, for a couple years, ASU's really had a hard time shooting in that building. And I'm just I'm going to be interested to see if ASU makes it a, a point of emphasis on Saturday to get the ball inside, get some of those looks that you were talking about that are the better shots that might be tougher to find, but those that will open up more uh, throughout the game. So I'll be curious to see how ASU starts attacking early on in that game. I think that'll be a pretty big indication of what's going to happen. Well, I, I totally agree. Um, and but of course, last year was such a different type of a team. Right. That right. I just think Stanford's better coached. They'll have an excellent game plan. They'll, 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 figure out a way to get the game flow probably going the way that they want it to. Uh, and the length of Stanford isn't as impressive as last year, but still could be somewhat of an issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Akpala is like a Brandon Ingram type of a player <laughs> yeah. who, can, who can put the ball on the floor and and drive you all the way to the basket from the three-point line. There's nobody who can defend him on ASU's team like Cheatham. So if he doesn't play, I totally agree that they're going to have to try to play a collapsing type of a zone. And, and um, But where Stanford has struggled sometimes is with physical teams. Mm-hmm. I think ASU is going to have to really try to body this team up and, and take it apart on the interior through a lot of you know gut punches. Uh, if they do that, I think that they stand a reasonable chance unless – some of Stanford's guards start going off from the perimeter because we know that they have that that capability as well. I think with Stanford, where you're seeing, I talked about consistency with ASU's offense. I think Stanford really understands where their strengths are on that side of the floor, and that's why they go through Akpala and Davis. Um, and both of those players are good on the perimeter as well as driving down low. And I think that, uh, you know, Chris mentioned it earlier, how he thinks that probably adjusted field goal percentage, ASU is the worst. Yeah, I mean, they're, according to Kempom, an effective field goal percentage, which is a little bit different, but... 205th in the country ASU ranks and that's 20 spots uh lower than the than the the 11th ranked team in the Pac-12 which it just happens to be Stanford but um I think that ASU like you said Rob is going to have to get underneath and and like Chris said if if Romello White uh and you know guys like Daquan Lake are able to be physical against Stanford which we've seen in spurts mm-hmm. but not consistently every game this season 
Uh, if they're able to do that, they, they do stand a reasonable chance. I think even with Cheatham, it's just going to be such a tough game given Stanford's talent and just how well they are, uh, how, how well coached they are. To Chris's point about the physicality aspect of it, uh, this is the second game of a road contest for ASU. Like Jack's story, ASU hasn't gotten the road sweep since the Pac-10 turned to the Pac-12. And ASU seemingly at the beginning of the game against Cal when they were went down by 14 at one point they were getting out physical by Cal they were not getting inside getting the rebounds to Jack's point um, Cheatham Lake they weren't getting the offensive rebounds that that really made them stand out in non-conference play and Stanford is a longer team than Cal was their, their front court six nine Okpala six nine and seven foot and they have a seven footer off the bench as well so it's it's going to be an even harder test for ASU to be to be able to rebound as well uh, even against the Cal game but if you look at it even at a deeper level, this this team is also a horrible free throw shooting team. ASU has not been able to since last season and into this year. Their, their free throw struggles are are still very prevalent. I mean, last game against Cal, sixty nine point six percent from the free throw line. So that is just an area that everyone seemingly feels like they need to fix. Whether or not they're working on it remains to be seen. Uh, the results, at least on the court, just have not been there. And Chris, I just wanted to make make a little point. Do you remember last year on Sanford, somebody had the best game of their season on the Sanford team last year? Do you remember who that was? Sharma. Sharma. Yeah. He put up like something like eighteen points and like eleven rebounds. Seven to seven from inside the arc. Yeah. Sharma couldn't miss. That. And and the guy, I have a, a friend that's a walk on on the team, and just he was saying that that guy never plays, and and the guy was a star in that game, and. I, I'm a little curious to see how he does this year. I think it'll be kind of funny if David uh, Sherman just goes off again. Rob, how bad would you lose in one-on-one to your friend? Uh, very badly. It's been done. It's It's been bad. But we're going to let Chris talk a little bit more about ASU basketball instead well, of me well, talking about my own skills. Well, really the last thing I wanted to say was that uh, ASU hasn't uh, been able to win a road trip in the Pac-12, both games, uh, the entirety of – since the league expanded to 12 teams, one of three teams, I believe yeah, one of three that, that haven't been able to do that. And it's also important to say that given how weak the conference is this year, that, and there's probably only going to be like uh, over under on how many PAC 12 teams make the PAC 12 tournaments, like two, two and a half. <laughs> okay. The NCAA tournament. Yeah. NCAA okay. tournament. Sorry. That would be a real disaster if only two teams made the Pac-12 tournament. Yeah, it would be really bad. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but but so yeah. So the point is is that ASU can't afford to be like playing 500 basketball right. in the Pac-12 in the, the first month of the year. You gotta start winning more games, put yourself in a in a better position. Um, you know, losing this mm-hmm. is I'm gonna view it as a kind of a missed opportunity. And by the way, you know, after this game, they play what, five straight top 100 Kimpom teams. Like, the schedule gets real tough, and I think six out of the next seven after it. So, you don't want to go into that coming off a, a split against your easiest road trip of the year. So, we're going to transition back to football now. The Under Armour All-America game. The game was on Thursday, January 3rd from Orlando, Florida. And Sunday fans had plenty to be excited about watching two of ASU's three 2019 quarterback signees playing in that game in Joey Yellen and Jaden Daniels. Chris, how does it help ASU in areas like recruiting to just see guys in there before we even talk about their performances in the game, just to see players coming to ASU that are on that national stage? Definitely matters a lot. There's no substitute uh, 
all the top recruits who are younger are going to be watching these games. Right. They want to play in these types of games. And Jaden Daniels, by many accounts, was the top or certainly one of the very best players in the game. And uh, on the West, he was evaluated to be like one of the key players in the game. He had two touchdown throws, game-winning throws. Both of them were sort of on the move where he had to quickly set his feet and make difficult completions. Uh, All week, he was viewed as the best quarterback uh, of the six on his team. It was neck and neck with Bo Nix for the top quarterback overall in the practice week and then through the game and then Daniel's performance actually in the game uh, when you just, you know, just kind of throw guys out there and and, and run it live um, was, was considered to be the best. And um, certainly he has a lot of weight that he has to add and size and strength. He's in ASU's program right now. Uh, but he has some unteachable things in, in terms of um, just the the ability to make plays and be a playmaker and mm-hmm. be like an, 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 an I call him uh, in my evaluation, which I urge everybody to read. He's an intoxicating playmaker. He's the type of guy that you cannot take your eyes off. You want to see what this guy's going to do next. And to your point, Rob, that's what people want. That's what people gravitate to is that sort of a presence. And he was a uh, record breaker in California and 14,000 career passing yards and 170 touchdowns or whatever it is. Just insane PlayStation type numbers. Mm -hmm. But let's also not discount the fact that Joey Yellen also looked good in the game. Yeah. One play, notwithstanding, and <laughs> and they both kind of just dropped the ball, but uh, literally. But um, to be uh, fair, Jaden Daniels did also have a play in which same was- thing. <laughs> he went back and the ball empty hand, but but maybe that was. I think honestly, maybe it's just the difference of the ball from high school to this is is different. And getting used to that in a game situation, but uh, ASU has. Uh, we've talked about it. One of the best signing classes in the country at the quarterback position. Both of these guys are going to are, are going to come in and compete immediately. As is Ethan Long. They're all mm-hmm. on campus right now. Uh, the quarterback situation is really barren after uh, you know Manny Wilkins departing. You have Dylan Sterling Cole back. He was pushed by a walk on last year. Uh, before becoming the number two right. job. The walk-ons now departed. He took a scholarship elsewhere. You have basically Sterling Cole. You have an injured Ryan Kelly who hasn't been able to throw the ball whatsoever because of a shoulder biceps problem that he had surgery on in April for the last two years. Very, I would say, unlikely to be a major factor in this race given all that. So it's Sterling Cole. It's Daniels, it's Yellen, and then Ethan Long maybe as sort of a wild card because he's a great athlete and physically kind of ready and off the mm-hmm. charts, uh, work ethic and all these sorts of things. We're going to cover it as closely as possible. <laughs> yep. uh, in fact, I, I haven't even told you guys this. We're going to have a daily QB tracker. Daily QB performance tracker in the spring starting less than a month from now. February 5th is actually the first practice. Uh, They'll be wrapped up by February 28th. We'll be there every single day. We'll tell you everything everybody did, how they all looked, and very excited to to be able to bring you guys all that coverage. Well, that is a perfect segue into spring football, and ASU is going to start practices, like Chris said, on Tuesday, February 5th. It's going to be a very busy month for this team. This is the earliest uh, ASU has added spring ball ever. Uh, Herm Edwards and his staff laid out some of the reasons for why that's happening. Jack, can you just explain what are some of those reasons? 
Uh, one of the big ones, the uh, the injury concern. If guys do get hurt, you'll have like a month to a month and a half extra recovery time. Uh, it it's better for the the way they set up their weight training programs. Usually, um, the the first of the two 12 week things would have to be split in half. Now they can do two of them, and then probably one of the biggest ones is recruiting um, with the the second year of the early visit period getting done a month to a month and a half earlier than other teams can allow the coaching staff to just kind of plan out what they want to do uh, for, for some of the springtime recruiting stuff. Really what's happened is recruiting has accelerated everything. Uh, there, prior to last year, recruits could not officially visit campus. That's paid visits by the schools until they started classes in the fall of their senior year. Okay. Well, now kids are able to take official visits when they're juniors starting in late April and running through uh, early June. I believe that it is. Okay. So on top of that, you have uh, all these coaches that are able to start going out on the road, evaluating recruits beginning uh, around mid April uh, for about a six week period that they're able to do that. So the spring used to be a slow period uh, in all my years covering this you had offers that kind of peppered out by coaches in late April through May, but there wasn't very much going on on their campus. And then by June, it really slowed down and, and into July it was also slow in the, in the front half before you get ready for camp and all that. That's no longer the case. Um, so what that means is that schools want to have a better sense of all the kids that they really want to recruit and target earlier on. So that takes more time put into the evaluation process earlier on so that that bumps up everything that you need to do um, so that's a big factor now ancillary factors would be uh, getting a really good sense of what you have to work with with your team in the spring quote-unquote spring because it's in February um, and those players are going to have more time in the playbook and watching their own film of their spring ball practices, right? Before you're doing that in late March, early April. Well, now you're doing it by the very end of February, early March. You're, you're so you have more time to be in the playbook and work to develop all these kinds of things. And then you also, as Jack said, you're going to have after spring ball ends, you're going to have two 12 week uh, periods of of weight room work where all of your hours you get only the, the 20 hours uh um weekly mm -hmm. uh and then they have you know discretionary time on their own where they can do stuff after that but all of that time is going to be able to be spent in their weight room development work uh you know you, you're getting it you're getting into the second year of a program uh there's a lot of effort on trying to get these guys bigger stronger more athletic and do it with this uh, new strength staff, they they probably feel great about the fact that they're now into their second off season, mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, their first after a season where they understand their team a lot better mm -hmm. and they're in inheriting a few of these, uh, not inheriting, but they're getting some of these uh, four freshmen that are coming in, the three quarterbacks, and then Donovan West, who's an offensive lineman, uh, who's a factor as well. So there's a lot of variables and, um, it's a very quick turnaround from the end of the season, the bowl game to, mm -hmm. to, to, to spring ball. And so that, that's kind of probably exciting for fans. Well, I was going to ask how ASU benefits from moving spring ball up, but I mean, I think you covered not, it right Not there. very many ways at all. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, 
Mark Brand, ASU Media Relations uh, Director, was telling me that they have to coordinate the the uh, the spring games with the Pac-12 Network because they're all televised. And the Pac-12 Network was like shocked that ASU was practicing so early. <laughs> February. And yeah, yeah. And no- normally they're having to like work around uh, baseball schedules in April. Well, now they're actually trying to work ASU around basketball schedules. <laughs> In late. Which is pretty crazy to consider. Yeah, it's, they were like kind of blown away by that apparently. So I, I think ASU is the earliest it's ever been by a month and a half starting and finishing. And they're doing it in a more condensed way. They're also – one more thing that they're doing is they're having uh, two practices midweek and then two practices or Friday, Saturday. The reason they're doing that is for recruiting because you get a lot of uh, prospective student-athletes that you want – Friday, coming Friday. into your program who come in on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. They can watch the practices, hang out for a day or two with their families, go through the whole recruiting experience, and that's a whole other sort of thing that they're trying to leverage. Yeah, Friday and Saturday nights be be interesting. It's going to be a busy month. It's going to be – for us, it's going to be busy. There's a couple you know, uh, instances in which we'll be having to cover basketball and, and fo- spring football at the same time. But, hey, I mean, it's not like – Five of us aren't sitting around here talking about right. it. Right. I mean, somebody's got to go cover it. Yeah. So, okay, Chris, you lent, you mentioned a lot of the positives, but are there things that are, like associated with this that are negatives for ASU? I mean, I mean, you'd think that most teams would do this then. It's a good question. Well, A, I think that teams will move up more and more. I think that we'll see this become more of a trend. It already kind of has been, but not to this degree. Uh, the, 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 the negatives would be, uh, less time for guys to get their bodies healthy from the season. That's the main one. Like you're, if you wait, like there's a lot of in football, there's a lot of injuries that are uh, four to six week type injuries. Uh, there's you know injuries that require you to have surgery that you wait until after the season and take maybe two to three months. Well, in in those scenarios, you can actually get a lot of those guys practicing for some of spring or maybe all of spring if you're starting in mid mid March and ending in April. Well, now anybody that's doing those things, they're going to miss practices in February. So, and you yeah. already have a much more limited number of bodies in the spring to work with. A lot of times we've seen walk-ons at depth, second string, third string. Well, now maybe you you might have even a, a few more of those. So, mm-hmm. that's definitely I would say by far the, the biggest drawback. And maybe and maybe you run the risk of having guys be burned out uh, a little bit uh, on football or just kind of weary mm-hmm. uh, of the whole you know process. That was a good question, Max. Thanks, he, he, he got some practice when he was filling in for me, doing a little bit of the hosting when I wasn't here. Uh, we're going to transition into baseball now. First impressions after the team's media day, which concluded – Monday, this is Tracy Smith's fifth year with the program. ASU's coming off its second consecutive season with a 23-32 and 32 record. Um, far below, I think, a lot of the standards Arizona State has for its baseball program. Historically, yeah. Far um, below. Uh, much smaller roster. Uh, 27 guys were on the roster on Monday. We've already reported on how that has been different. 27 is a very small number for a college baseball roster. Jack was reporting last night how there's you, you can have 35 guys on a team, and uh, for the most for, for most of the time that I've been at Arizona State, and it's the same for, for Jack and Max as well, there's been closer to that 35 number on this team. So having 27 is kind of a shock. You're really banking on guys' health, 
on everything you're thinking about guys living up to their potential coming to fruition. Uh, what do you guys think? What are your first impressions on what's going on with the program so right now? People know that I don't cover baseball as thoroughly as, as the other sports, but um, I did speak with a few people who have been around and closely observing ASU baseball for many decades. And what they say pretty consistently, as you just said, Rob is teams are, almost always have 35 or right at 35 um, when you start a season or getting ready to start a season. Often you even have a few guys that are redshirting on top of the 35. Right. Um, and of course, you, what do you get? 27 scholarships, mm -hmm. right? So if you're 27 to 35, as you would expect, is going to be your weakest, you know, number right. of groups and whatever. But the, the problems are, as I see it, a few. One is practicing becomes harder when you have pitchers who are being base runners <laughs> yeah. and you don't have depth. And if one guy gets hurt and you move somebody, you have more limited options at other positions. And how is that exactly going to work out? Right. Um, if you have injuries and other other, you know, unforeseen things, illnesses, that that's that's a major thing. What right. do they have? 13 or 14 position players something right around there 14 right now like 14 yeah. yeah right so that that's that is a very spartan type of a number and and, yeah. and and just the other thing that i wanted to say is is really to compare this actually to other sports that i have covered extremely thoroughly which is to say that when you have tracy smith's fifth year right when you have coaches that get into this kind of a five six seven year range when they haven't done well relative to historical norms you see a a contraction of the roster. You see fewer guys who are out there, and fewer. The, even you may yeah. have a very like ASU has a uh, is very talented one through whatever it is fifteen twenty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's still a good amount of talent. There's it's right. just a very small group of people. Okay. Right so, but so so what happens is is that the margin of error reduces right. reduces reduces to where everything kind of has to go right for it to happen and then even when that does happen you then have to build out of that that problem which takes another year two years three years now this isn't something that tracy smith and asu baseball coaches are going to all be talking about right at all they're going to be saying we're talented we were very young last year mm -hmm. tracy smith said we're, we're the youngest team in the country last year i find that unlikely but um you know, we're going to be a lot more settled on defense because we have guys that are in their positions and we have, uh, you know, maybe we don't have as much experience pitching, but we have harder throwers and there's, you know, all these things. Okay, fine. You're going to say all that, but they're in consideration of the bigger picture. There are a lot of things that are potentially dragging them down uh, around their ankle. And certainly, and, and We'll see if yeah. their confidence and optimism is matched by anything. And, and guys, you guys know a lot more details than, than I do. I think you just need to look back to last year to see what can Definitely. happen if things don't go according to plan. Yeah. Spencer Van Scoy, supposed to be the opening day starter, or was the opening day starter, was supposed to be, you know, he was Tracy Smith. Had a phenomenal Mike, fall is what Mike we were Cather, told. Yeah, had a great fall. When he, when he gets it going, he can be, you know, a, a, a number one starter in the Pac-12. He was in the bullpen by like the third or fourth week of the season. Yeah. Uh, I think he made two starts in yeah. that Friday night Con spot. Connor Higgins was supposed to be the closer. He was the only guy drafted a couple years ago, comes back to school. He's going to solidify the back end of the bullpen. 
and he had a really up and down season to the point where, you know, last year it was Alec Marsh, a guy who was supposed to start in the was supposed to pitch in the bullpen. Nobody expected much. He becomes a Friday night starter. And it was Dellen Raish, another guy who just had to redshirt his first year and they didn't even know if he was going to play, ends up being their best reliever. And yeah. he's also gone from the team this year. So, yeah, like I look at it, I kind of like the what looks like is going to be the week in rotation with Marsh, who has really developed over the last year. Uh, Boyd Vanderkoy obviously has a lot of talent, although he was he was injured through most of last season. Five then, starts last year. Yeah, and then R.J. Dabovich, who's a, a junior college pitcher um, who you know gets into the mid to upper 90s with his fastball and, and has some good – uh, off-speed stuff, according to uh, to Kather. But again, it's like, okay, well, if he doesn't work out, kind of where do you go from there? Um, I think the biggest thing, especially uh, Chase Sagidal is the guy who left this week. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing is, like, they only have two left-handed pitchers now. And Chaz Montoya, who Ooh, was really up right. and down last year, and Eric Tolman, who's a freshman who they like. But again, as a freshman, you don't... You don't really know what you got pan out. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I think with the other parts of the roster, like the lineup's is solid. It's going to be one of the better lineups in the Pac-12. I I have to believe the defense is going to be at least a little bit better. Last year it was so historically bad that it's going to regress back to them. I guess progress. It'd be pretty hard for them to be worse. They Pro, had 21 yeah. errors more mm-hmm. than any other team in yeah. the Pac-12. Yeah, progress to the mean a little bit. Um, but it's like the pitching. If all those guys hit, then yeah, maybe this is a team. They have a pretty easy schedule. Maybe it's a team that can get into the mid-30s win total and, and push for the postseason. But if you start having... If R.J. Dabovich doesn't pan out, or if you can't find guys in the bullpen to close down games, which was a huge issue for this team last year, you're going to be back in that kind of yeah mid-20 wins mark, um, especially in a Pac-12 that also people are expecting to be better than it was last season when it was kind of down. So, yeah, I think, like Chris said, the core group of guys, the 1 through 12, 1 through 15, is probably – about as good as they've had the last couple of years. Um, and I think there is something to be said about the fact that it it does seem like this clubhouse atmosphere, this group of guys is tighter. These are all guys that, that Tracy Smith has brought in. It's the first time it's a team of guys only who have right. signed to him. Um, but the margin of error is so thin for a team that has not been able to overcome these things in years past, has not been able to take care of the fundamentals yeah. and the pitching and all those little things Base that can running. decide games. And I think what Chris said is so true. You're not worried about the lineup. The lineup's probably the last thing you're worried about. As you're, long as you can protect Torkelson and get maybe better play from right. you, you, you need to start, Bishop or others. You need to do exactly what you're saying. You need to keep people healthy. You need the fundamentals to really be I mean they have to be a 180 from last year so because there were a good half dozen games that would come down to Hunter Bishop dropping a ball against Arizona or was it uh, uh, Marsh like threw one away on the mound or right. Connor Higgins would throw one away on the mound or Drew Swift would make an at error Stanford they were up by two runs against the top was, 10 team in the country and had a, two errors in the eighth inning lost that game yeah we could probably still be talking there was a, there was a pattern if we gonna go through Carter Aldretti in the outfield, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on with this team. Those are some of our first impressions. We'll be out there reporting on whatever is going on with the program, though. We unpacked a lot on this podcast, guys. I think that's going to do it, though, for us. Anything else, boss? No, that was, uh, that was good. Good way to get going again. Good way to get started, and we'll, we'll be doing these podcasts each week. We're excited to be back for you guys. And alongside staff reporters Jack Harris... Max Madden, Mason Kern, and as always, site publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Rob Warner, saying so long, and thank you for tuning in.